0: Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the whole Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're two and a half years into what will probably be, I estimate, a 10 year plan, Lord willing. So I'm really delighted that you decided to join with me today. Now, I'm actually recording this this episode, which was due to go live on Christmas Eve, so you'll probably notice there's a gap of three or four days over Christmas and New Year where there won't be the regularity of the podcast episodes, but they shall continue fully again Monday to Friday with a compilation episode of the weekend throughout the coming year. Please do hang around at the end where I'll just give you some information and ways you can connect with the ministry and some information and good wishes about Christmas and the new year. Bye for now. Okay folks, we're here again today and we're going to be picking up Matthew chapter 9 verses 32, closing off these two chapters that have been mainly focusing on uh, the miracles of Jesus Christ. And today we shall be looking at the situation where a man who's suffering from mutism speaks. So we'll just begin by picking up where we left off last time and I'll read to you just a couple of verses beginning at verse 32. As they went out, that's Jesus and his disciples, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Okay, this is a little short story of a man who is described as being demon-possessed and is unable to speak. Now, most Bible commentators recognise and suggest that the mutism was as a result of demon possession, in this case anyway. But what we know for sure is that was the lived experience of this man and his family and the community around him. And it actually tells us that group of people around him that bring him to Jesus. And Jesus casts out the demon and the man is able to speak. But look at the reaction of the wider crowd. Instead of rejoicing, they say he's done this by the power of the ruler of demons, meaning Satan himself. Obviously, I would suggest whipped up by the Pharisees who are amongst them. Instead of the people saying, wow, he's the Messiah, look at what he's done. Rather than bow the knee to the Messiah who's standing before him, they actually accuse him of being an agent of Satan himself. This is the beginning of something that's now going to develop through the Gospel of Matthew, and it will reach its nadir in chapter 12. There will be a climatic moment in the Gospel of Matthew and the life of Christ about this very issue. At any rate, these Pharisees, and a great many of the people, even though they admit what they're saying is something like they've never seen before, like nothing that has ever been experienced in the history of Israel, they attribute that miraculous situation to demonic activity. The religious leadership and much of the crowd, they looked at Jesus and yes, they saw a miracle. And even the Pharisees are said to look and say that they recognized that what he had done had never been done before. So in a sense, it had put him in a league of his own, certainly in terms of power. Yet they were too set in their ways to change their outlook, too pride in their self-righteousness, too pride in their self-satisfaction or willing to submit and change their prejudices to see who Jesus really was and what was really going on. They saw no need to change their superior attitude but more than that they also hated anyone who wanted to challenge their perspective on anything to do with their religious self-righteousness or even allow what they had seen and experienced and change it. Please make note at this point of what we have seen so far in these preceding two chapters. We have just run through these three miracles here, but you may remember I have suggested to you that there are in fact a block of nine miracles in these two chapters. And at the end of each group of three, there is a word that he says, some teaching he gives about discipleship. In a sense that's what's happening here and will happen at the end of this cycle of miracles also so let's take a moment and look at how he unpacks the concept of discipleship here and the advice that it offers us in the verses that follow so reading from verses 35 to 38 then jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send labourers into his harvest. This little subsection of scripture is showing Matthew deals with the idea of Jesus going about, practiced his ministry, which consisted of preaching and teaching. And then how, having done that and done these miraculous things, he, we are told that he looks at the crowd that are gathered there and he's moved to compassion. Now, one authority in Greek words that I read, a guy called William Barclay, says that this is the strongest word for pity and compassion in the Greek language. It describes a type of compassion that moves someone to the deepest depths of an emotional response. Jesus looks out at all the throngs of people that have gathered and are following him, and he was deeply moved, and he was deeply moved with compassion. He had, as some would say, a gut reaction. And it tells us here that he looked in them and he saw how spiritually scattered they were, how weary they were, how in distress they were, and how confused and worried they were. Someone I read said they were exhausted in their vain search for happiness. Notice it also says in the passage that they were scattered. And that word means that they weren't where they were from anymore. They weren't in a place near to where they were born anywhere. This crowd was from all over and they have become like sheep without a shepherd, lost in the wilderness, so to speak. Now, as anyone who has farmed sheep, and I can tell you from some experience, because I used to work or volunteer on a farm as a child and a young man during the summer, that sheep without a shepherd really are a very confused animal that lacks direction. Sheep, I would suggest, actually are pretty stupid animals, They are animals that need a leader. So Jesus sees these people as sheep. He sees them as lost, as hurting. And that's primarily, he recognises that because they don't have a proper knowledge of God. It's not just their physical needs, but their spiritual condition that he recognises. Their lack of nurture and guidance and protection. And he's concerned about that. And he recognizes that because their so-called spiritual leaders have not been properly taking care of them. And it is that that leads Jesus to feel compassion for them. You know, businessmen today, they look upon the crowd, upon the society, and they see the crowd as nothing more than people to sell stuff to. Politicians, many of them, I would suggest, look at the crowd and they just see a pool of voters to be pulled in, be manipulated and to be influenced but you see Jesus he looks at the crowd and he sees them as lost sheep and his response is one of the deepest spiritual compassion for them you know friends I believe there's nothing quite so dangerous to a meaningful purposeful Christian faith life than if we begin to lose our empathy for other people If we begin to see other people and just begin to view them as annoying, as an interference or an interruption or a hindrance to us just being able to go about our busy lives, then we are on the first step of a path that leads to real spiritual trouble. When Jesus looks at other people, he sees them as lost. He sees people as people who are in need of help. At the same time, this passage is pointing out that the crowd is out there, the harvest is plentiful but we are reminded that the workers are few. And to be using this metaphor of the lost sheep means that these people need someone to go and tell them how to find their way home, how to find their way to God and to make things different for them, to make their lives different and better. But reminding us at the same time that doing that will be hard work, which is why he says and tells us to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send us and to send out laborers into that harvest so we are not only to pray for those lost sheep but we are also to pray that others come to do the work of the harvest with us we are to pray to god that he will send us send workers to go out and do the work of the harvest the work of the kingdom you see the ultimate In being a disciple of Jesus is that you care deeply about the spiritual needs of others I would like to simply submit to you that because Jesus Christ is revealed here by Matthew as the true Messiah that these two chapters are here to demonstrate just what kind of a Messiah he is and all that we can learn from that I've said several times that there are nine miracles in these two chapters and they're broke into three groups of three in the first cycle of miracles, Jesus heals a man with leprosy, another man who is paralysed, followed by we then see the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, thereby clearly demonstrating that he has authority, that he has total power over sickness. In the second cycle, he seen to calm a storm, he casts out a demon, and he actually forgives sin, demonstrating that he has power over nature, and not only power over sin, but power over the effects of sin in this third cycle that we've just finished looking at yesterday and today, he has actually raised someone from the dead and he's cured blindness and cast out another demon and actually enabled a man who couldn't speak to speak. Thereby showing that Jesus has power not only over evil, but the effects of evil, even to the point of death itself. I'm suggesting that the point of these recent two chapters is to show that Jesus is the ultimate, the perfect Messiah, because he has power over disease, because he has power over the demonic realm, and because he has power over death itself. In fact, he has power over everything. And the question this raises in my mind is, wouldn't you like to have someone on your side that has that kind of authority, that kind of power, authority over nature, over disease. And that person, of course, is Jesus, God's only son and Messiah and saviour of the world. And that's what Matthew is trying to say here and share with us here. But there's another observation I want to make about these two chapters as a unit, because what we begin to see here is little hints of opposition appearing. Now this is only the beginning, and there'll be more to come. We notice that when he cast out a demon on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the opposition was to get him to leave the region. And he also faced opposition in the form of criticizing him for not just what he did, but with his practice. They came and criticized him for sitting down and eating with ordinary Gentiles and sinners, for goodness sake the Pharisees then raise the natural level of opposition and say, question where he gets his power from, attributing it to Satan. And then some of the former disciples of John the Baptist, they also come and question his practice. So what I want to do is also, as a secondary idea, is establish the idea, plant the seed in your mind that the opposition is rising. Because as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, we will see, well here we saw the beginning of it, but we shall see that opposition, although starting here, it will end up with a crescendo of him being rejected by the nation of Israel and crucified on a cross at the hands of the Romans. You can't read these two chapters without being struck by the fact that Matthew is giving us one miracle after another, and he's clearly doing that to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah, but at the end of each of these cycles, he tries to make a point about discipleship, meaning he wants to try to help us practically know what it'll mean if we choose to follow him like those that do in this account. And at the end of the first cycle of miracles, he actually gave us some advice and pointed out some of the excuses why some people choose not to follow him. And at the end of the second cycle of the miracle, he did exactly the same thing. And now here at the end of the third cycle of the miracles, he looks at the crowd and we too are metaphorically meant to look out into the world. What he sees is great spiritual need. And that great spiritual need moves to the very depth of his being and results in compassion. The need is great and the harvest is truly huge, it tells us. And he tells us to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send us more labourers. The heart of this chapter is telling us that Jesus, what an amazing, perfect Messiah he is. But the ultimate response to that should be of us making a choice to follow him and then going out and labouring in the field and offering the good news to those others, moved by compassion to do it. I sometimes wonder if maybe we spend too much time praying for our own needs or the needs of our loved ones. And I'm not suggesting we shouldn't do that, but sometimes we do forget to pray for others, and we specifically maybe don't pray and ask the Lord to send others to come alongside and help us with the labour. Maybe that's something we should add to our prayer list. Lord, give us people who know how to labour in the field. Lord, send us carers, send us ministers, send us teachers, preachers and evangelists. Now, in the next passage, in chapter 10, verse 1, we will begin to see Jesus sending out his 12 disciples, those that he has called, sending them out to begin the work of the harvest. He calls his first 12 disciples and soon he will send them out. So today, if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, well, let me tell you, as a result of someone else going out and laboring in the field on your behalf, you have benefited from that today. The ultimate in being a disciple, in being a follower of Jesus' day, is not that you just sit within that that blessing and that grace, but that you too take time out to labor for that harvest yourself, that you become involved in the, the harvest, which means that you become involved in telling people or enabling other people to tell people about Jesus Christ yourself. Jesus says, follow me. But did he say, follow me and I will solve all your problems? Nope. Did he say, follow me and I will make you rich? Nope. What he did say was, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I submit to you, friends, that when we become followers, we are absolutely commanded here that we should become fishers also. If not, we're not truly really fulfilling his call. Jesus may be the ultimate Messiah, but we are not or can never be the ultimate disciples until we've learned how to fish for others. In closing, by way of illustration, it is said that Martin Luther had a friend and that they came to an agreement that Martin Luther would go into the battle, which was called the Reformation, and that his friend would stay in the monastery and pray for Martin Luther and his work. And that's the way they began. Then one night that friend had a dream and he saw a vast field of corn, as big as the world it was said, and he saw one solitary man who was seeking to reap it all by himself. It was an impossible, heartbreaking task. But then in his dream, he caught a glimpse of the reaper's face and that single man out in the field reaping, he said was Martin Luther himself. The next time he saw Martin Luther, he said, I have made the decision that I must leave my prayer life now and I must get to work. And he did that. He left the monastery and he went to go help Martin Luther in the business of the Reformation of the Church and to share the work in introducing people to the reality of God justifying us by faith alone, in Christ alone. And what I'm suggesting is that we too all need to become those kind of disciples. Now I know some people who are older, maybe in the latter stages of their life, they can't physically practically do as much as they want and they can become prayer warriors and they can become supporters emotionally, financially and other ways for people who are doing the work. But all of us are called to pray for the harvest and then in some way to go and begin and be part of the reaping of it. Okay, friends, that's it for today. I hope you find that helpful. I will be having a break for a few days, as I said before, over Christmas and New Year, so you may not see episodes drop quite so regularly as you have over the next week or so. Just a quick note that if you are listening to this over the Christmas period, the time when most of the world's Christian church celebrates the advent and the arrival of Jesus, Can I just offer my best wishes and my hopes and prayers that you have a lovely time of celebration, a coming together perhaps with your family and friends, but also for those who are not able to do that. I know for many, 2023 is shaping up to be another challenging year. The cost of living crisis here in the UK, I'm well aware, covers a great swathes of the whole world. It seems that financially people's lives are being gradually degraded, and of course that loss of security does for many have a knock-on effect on their overall feelings of well-being. But with your help and your support by staying involved with this podcast, I hope to try and create the link between freedom from The fears of this world and any financial difficulties, and even the impact of mental health problems by addressing it through the encouragement of the words of Jesus and the truth of the gospel itself. So, I do truly pray for you and your loved ones that you have a wonderful Christmas time and that next year that God reveals himself ever more closely to you by the study of his word. I really hope that the next year for all of us passes more easily, more happily than we expected because of our knowledge and our relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And in closing off, I just say, if you're here for the very first time, can I just recommend that you subscribe to the podcast. Now the host of the podcast is www.thebibleproject.buzzspout.com but I know most of you get this podcast off your podcast providers and there should be links there not only to a transcript of what I've said but also other ways in which you can connect to the teaching and the ministry. Lots of other free resources available in various places. Now if you're not getting active links that you can click through on through wherever you get your podcasts from because I know quite a few of the podcast platforms are closing down those links out now then you can still find all that information all those links as I said on www.thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com And if you are benefiting from this, then maybe in 2023, make a decision to like or to share it on those places in social media that you exist. So more people can have the opportunity to make the decision to make the study of the word of God part of the rhythm of their daily lives also through 2023 and beyond. But once again, thank you so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure and privilege for me to know that there are thousands of us now around the world in over 160 countries who've made the decision to go on this amazing journey through the entire Bible with me. So I wish you a blessed Christmas and a wonderful new year and every year thereafter. In Jesus' name, Amen.